So yeah, today we're reaching the end of our love story of Ruth and Boaz. And uh, before we begin, I don't know if you noticed, there's a few motherly themes there right at the end as we see uh, Ruth becoming a mother and uh, Noemi, Noemi, wow, you've you've messed me up now, Naomi, (laughs) Naomi uh, kind of being renewed as a mom as she now has this grandchild and they say you have a son with or through Ruth. And so for that I thought it would be good to just take a minute and say happy Mother's Day to any moms that might be in the room. I know there's at least a couple back there at the back with the babies. <laughs> and for all of those of us that have mothers, I thought it would be good, especially because I know my mom's going to listen to this sermon. I just want to take a minute and just pray a quick blessing on moms that I think is important because they are very important in our lives. Father, we thank you so much for the moms in our lives and the moms that are here today, the sacrifices that they've made and will make, and Father, the, the faithfulness that they've had to us in raising us to be who we are today and things that we owe to them that we don't even know about. We just pray a blessing on them from you and the that we would be a blessing to them in any chance that we can. In your name, amen. And for all of you who aren't mothers, if you didn't yet, please call your moms today. It's important. I have a little bit of a, a break because I still have like seven hours different, so I'll have to do it in the evening. But it's important. Now, before we get into the conclusion of what I believe is just a wonderfully written book, it's so short it's so compact, it's so full and, and full of life and full of God's providence and God's work in some insignificant situations, it seems. They're just ordinary people, and yet God does some miraculous things, as, we, as we've seen so far. Before we go into our conclusion, though, of this narrative, I want to just take a brief minute. We're going to walk through a little bit of uh, the first three acts, as I, I call them acts because I as I mentioned several times throughout this series, it's, it's really like a play, the way that it's written. Each chapter, like its own act, its own scene, kind of being set. And as it moves forward in the narrative, uh, we have this kind of feeling of like a, a well-written play. It's very well thought out in the way that it's worded and the way it's structured. And so we're going to look through the first three acts, but I want to do it with a little bit of a different focus than we did last week, for instance, when we kind of went through the first uh, few acts uh, we're going to look specifically at all of the walls that they come up against, all of the setbacks that they face. In such a short book, there's so many things that they keep on hitting, the characters keep on running into again and again throughout this, again, short narrative, this short story. And so we're going to kind of do that. And as we do, I especially want to look closely at Naomi. As I mentioned last week, she's not, the book's called the book of Ruth, but Naomi seems to be really the driving force behind the narrative. She's kind of always behind the scenes. She seems to be the center. She's how the book opens up. Uh, as I mentioned, it's a very interesting book in the sense that we, the, immediately it switches from the position of the, or the perspective of her husband to the perspective of Naomi. And the whole book is kind of unfolding from these women's perspective. And even when we hear from the other people, it's usually, and the women came and said. It's a lot, 
it's a, a little bit different compared to a lot of the Old Testament books in that it's really driven by how these women experience these situations. We don't see it from the perspective of Boaz or from the husband or any other male characters, but really through these female eyes. And it starts with Naomi, and it also, as we just read through in the text today, or Kiki bravely read through today, uh, we see that it kind of concludes with Naomi being the end focus as well, or one of the end focuses. So the first setback that we see is right at the beginning. Ruth 1.1, the very first verse, it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now there's two setbacks I think we can immediately draw out of this very short verse. <coughs> you have to excuse me today. The first is that it was in the time of the judges. And if we look back at the very last verse of the book of Judges, it says that it was a, a time when everyone did whatever they felt was right. So it was not a great time for the, for the people of Israel. It wasn't a time when things where they were following God, where things went really well. There was a lot of rebellion against God, and they went through these vicious cycles of, of rebelling and following other gods. And I want to point that out because I believe that it in itself is a type of setback because they were living in a time when it would have been hard to follow God, and yet we see such righteousness through Boaz and through Ruth and the way that they live their life, the way that they go about these, uh, or the way that they navigate these experiences. And also we know that it would have been very early on, or kind of early to mid-time of the, if we look at the span of the book of Judges, which is about 400 and something years, 420-ish, and uh, it would have been kind of somewhere early on in that because we know that Rahab, uh, who was the, the prostitute that helped the Israelites uh, win in the battle against Jericho, Rahab is the mother of Boaz. And so it couldn't have been too distant of a time, only about a, a generation, two generations, or a generation and a half away from where we see the book of Judges begin. And the second setback, of course, is the famine. Now, the famine is, of course, a, a pretty hard wall to hit in itself, but it also is what it led them to. It led them to, it forced them to leave their homeland. And uh, Naomi and her husband, her two sons, they leave their home, which is a struggle in itself. We also, I think, live in a time, we live in a society, we can kind of adapt this to our lives today, where we're not persecuted, we're not being killed or anything like that, as I don't believe they were either, but we do live in a time where when, we, when it's known that we're Christians, if we go to our workplace, if we go to our schools, to our classes, and we announce that, hey, I believe in Jesus Christ, we're kind of opening ourselves up a little bit to be ridiculed, to be looked differently upon, and we might learn a lot about how people really feel about Christianity and those things, and I think even in a place like Germany and even in a place like Freiburg with so many good Christian churches, it can be difficult to really walk in the ways of the Lord in our society, in, our, in the world that we live in. And though we may not have any famines in Germany, far from a famine in Germany, but uh, many of us here today are not from here. We're foreign here. We're from a different place and that in itself can be a struggle. It can be a wall we hit, a, a setback in our lives and our ability to be able to navigate clearly. And 
We see in the beginning, Naomi and her family, they go and they're foreigners in Moab. But all through the story, of course, we still see the same principle because as they go back, Ruth is still a foreigner. Now she's the foreigner in Israel. And being a foreigner can be a challenge and a setback and a hard trial in our lives as we walk forward in the Lord. Now the next setback follows really closely. They, before we even reach verse 5 of chapter 1, Naomi feels great loss. First, she loses her husband. Her husband dies pretty early on. We don't know exactly when, but it must have been pretty early in their time in Moab. And then both her sons, within 10 years, have both died. And the loss of a loved one is a huge setback in life. It's something that knocks us off. It pushes us down. It twists our world around. And it can be something that is hard to push through, hard to navigate past. And now Naomi is with her two daughters-in-law, right? And they're headed back from Moab. They decide to go back to Israel. And then we see the next setback that I think is connected with the loss and how it shapes our worldview, how it kind of mixes up the way that we see things and makes, it, makes us unclear about the real reality of our future. In verse chapter 1 of verse 11 of Ruth, But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? Who could become your husbands? And she goes on and on with that, saying, Even if I had a son, if I had sons right now, would you going to wait until they grow up? That's, it's, that's ridiculous. And I don't even have a husband, so what? there's no hope. There's no hope of a redeemer. Naomi's too old to have sons for her daughters-in-law, and they have no one that can redeem the name and the property that they would be going home to in Israel. It's an impossible situation as Naomi sees it. At this point, she's totally and completely forgotten about Boaz. She's forgotten about this relative that she would have known about, but I think in the midst of her loss... In the midst of these setbacks, things become a little distorted. And we don't see clearly. The pain of her loss leads her to see a bleaker future than is actually there. And she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She says, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. My life has lost all of its fullness. She says, I, came, I, I left Israel and went to Moab. I was full. I had a family. And I've come back. And now I am empty. I have nothing left. And then in Act 2, Boaz comes into the, into the picture through God's providence. That Ruth goes out and, and needs to find food for her and Naomi. And of all the fields, she just happened to end up in the field belonging to Boaz. I love that the writer puts it in that way. That it just happened to end up there. Obviously, it's God's providence. Obviously, God's plan was working all of the time, always building to this moment that she would just happen to end up in that field. And Boaz shows great kindness to Ruth and Naomi, giving them extra portions and protection and offering water and making sure that his workers throw a little extra food down for them to pick up. 
He went above and beyond, above what was required. And at this point, we can kind of begin to see that he may have had some feelings for Ruth, and they're kind of starting to show here. Even though it's subtle, there is some aspect or some kind of idea of his feelings. And I think it was clear to Naomi when she sees how, she, how uh, Boaz has been treating Ruth. And it says that Boaz noticed her right from the beginning. Right as he comes into the field, he's like, hey, who's that girl? So he had noticed her right from the beginning. And then in Act 3, what we looked at last week, Naomi gets her little plan together. We talked about how it's a really weird plan. It's a really weird way to try to uh, connect with Boaz, to try to get him to be the redeemer. But uh, they go forward with the plan nonetheless. And I believe, as I said, the plan seems to be based on some kind of foreknowledge about Boaz's feelings. That he mu- she must have kind of picked up on his character, that he clearly had a thing for Ruth, and also his righteousness. That he was a righteous man, which is why this plan, that plan all made more sense. And the plan, we won't go through again, but basically Ruth goes to him in the middle of the night after he's been working. He's ate, he's drank, he's sleeping, and Ruth sneaks up and lays at his feet and kind of pulls the covers over him. It's a bit of a heavy scene, a little bit PG-13. And Ruth, though wisely and so subtly, uses the very words that Boaz had used earlier in chapter 2. In chapter 2, Boaz had praised her for coming and trusting in the Lord that her, a foreigner, would come and trust in the God of Israel. And not only trust in him, but come under his wing of protection. That God would be her refuge. And he uses the word, under the wing of God. And Ruth, in verse 9 of chapter 3, uh, chapter three says, Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. And that word, corner of your garment, is also the same Hebrew word that... Boaz had used for wing, the wing of God. And we looked at last week how this was Ruth's inviting Boaz. She's inviting Boaz to be the agent, to be the means of God's kindness. He can be that wing under which Ruth comes and takes refuge. So Boaz is, of course, honored by this. We looked at how he must have been an older man probably in his mid-50s, Ruth most likely in her mid-20s, considering that she would have been married somewhere between 15 and 20, and 10 years had passed until her husband had died. So he's honored. Young woman wants to marry him. But then he says, wait, but there's another that has the right before me. And we wonder why. Why did you have to bring that up? Why do you have to be so righteous, Boaz? You were in. You had it all worked out. But he does things rightly. He wants to do things according to what God intends and what God's best is. And the law was, as we looked at, if you were listening as we read through the text at the beginning, the law was that the property belonging to the husband of Naomi needed to be redeemed through purchase. But there was an order to who had the rights first. And this goes back to... Uh, Deuteronomy, it's also mentioned in Numbers, that uh, a brother had first right, so a brother of Naomi's 
deceased husband, then an uncle, then a cousin, and then just a clan member. And we don't know where Boaz lies in this or how exactly it fits and why he was not first, but clearly he knew he wasn't, and he even made it known, brought it to the attention of uh, the other redeemer. And then Act 3 ended with Naomi's confidence in her plan, right? Even with this new setback, even knowing that now they've reached this new point where, okay, everything's, we've got this plan, everything's, God's brought you into the right field at the right time, everything's come together, everything's looking good. Wait, what? Now there's another redeemer instead? Like what? Man, it's so frustrating when we get to these points in our lives, isn't it? God's, we've been, we've been praying, we've been praying, we've been pushing forward, pushing forward, and, and finally the doors are opening. Everything seems like it's going to work out. Everything's right on, right on the right track, and then another wall. It's like, what, God? What? I, I, thought that was, I thought we were headed in the right direction. What does this mean? Naomi doesn't seem too discouraged. Again, I think in knowing what she knows about Boaz, because she tells, in verse 18 of chapter 3, she tells Ruth, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. She knows, she says, okay, you may see this as as another wall, but just wait. This is going to work out. One, because I think she saw how Boaz felt for Ruth, and knew he was going to work this thing out however he could. And second, because I think there's a trust in, in God and seeing this as God's providence, even if it's just subtly. Ruth and Boaz are clearly in love with each other. We saw that in the last, in the last two, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, in the way that they treat each other, the way that they praise one another. And now this other Redeemer stands between them. And if he chooses to redeem the land, he will then also, as we saw in the text, be required to marry Ruth. Naomi doesn't know what will happen, but she knows Boaz is going to work it out however he can. And this is what leads us to today, our text for today in Act 4. And it all happens at the gate. It says that kind of this whole scene is playing out at the gate. That was just kind of like the place where things happened. It's where the bread and a lot of the food would have been sold. It's where a lot of business took place. It's where everybody passed through, of course. And so it was just kind of, it wasn't anything significant other than it was just the happening spot to be at, which is why he goes there and waits until he sees that man. And everybody else seems to be just kind of right at arm's length as he pulls everyone together. And Boaz is seeking, again, to do everything rightly, according to God's standard, God's ways, giving the man his first right, biblically, by the law, his first right to to redeem the property. And he does it in front of witnesses, also required by law, and the elders of of the city. And in verse 4, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. Now here I feel like we can just feel Boaz's nervousness. Like, hey, if you're going to do it, man, just do it. (laughs) But if not, then tell me, because then I will. 
but then the man says, I will redeem it. It's like, wait, what? You're messing up the story, man. You can feel the tension, I believe, and as Boaz hears this yes, that this other man will redeem it. It seems like the thing, everything has gone wrong. Everything's fallen apart. As often happens when we're walking with the Lord and we feel like God's calling us in this direction and we hit this wall and then we start to break through and then we hit another wall and we hit another wall. We need to not lose hope in those moments. Thankfully, though, this one is a very short-lived setback. In verse 5, then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. Now, I think it's interesting. I feel like, and I don't know, this is just my opinion, but I feel like it seems like the writer is kind of wanting us us to see that Boaz withheld that information on purpose. He didn't say, hey, you know, you need to redeem the property. Oh, there's also Ruth. He waits until he hears this answer, which is peculiar. We don't know why. Maybe he was just kind of like not wanting to show all the cards at once. I'm not sure why he did it that way. But at any rate, he did. It still works out for him in the end. In verse 6, at this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. Now, this endangering his inheritance, the Bible or the text is not completely clear on what exactly that meant. Uh, I think most likely it was that he had children already. He was already married. He had children and they were set to get his belongings. They they had an inheritance waiting for them. And if he had also married Ruth and had a child with Ruth, then they would have to split that inheritance. And he's like, no, I want my kids to have all of the inheritance. So I don't want to risk messing that up for them. That's one of the options and seems to be most likely for considering the time. In verse 8, so the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. No clue why that was ever a thing. I'm just glad it's not anymore. And I think it's interesting because I feel like even the writer is like kind of trying to distance himself from this idea because he says, he kind of goes, all of verse 7 is just him kind of saying, there was this thing that they did like back then. Now, in earlier times in Israel, this is how they did business. Somebody had the brilliant idea, why shake hands when we can give each other our sandals? And, uh, but apparently, when, the, when this was written, or for the audience that it was written for, this was no longer a thing. So he has to make a point to explain, okay, that was something that they used to do. And, so, uh, and it also tells us, again, yeah, that the audience of the book was definitely written for somebody or for people after the time that this actually took place. At any rate, in the end, Boaz gets the re- to be the redeemer. It's a happy ending. He gets to marry Ruth. And he gets this smelly sandal to take with him. So that's cool. That's a thing. But the last setback, I believe, in the text that isn't actually named, but I believe is implied, is that Ruth was barren. And we can make this assumption from a few given details of the story. One, that Ruth was married for 10 years and had no children. Having no children was not a life choice at that time. It wasn't like, ah, you know, children aren't for me. 
Everyone wanted to have children. It was the only way that your inheritance would move on, only way that your name would pass on. And so she didn't have children for 10 years, so that's one way that we can kind of guess she might have been barren. But I think the second reason, and I think ties everything in a little bit more clearly, is the, the blessing that the women of the town say over her. In verse 11, it says, May the Lord make the woman, talking about Ruth, like Rachel and Leah, which is interesting because both of them had a season where they were barren and God blessed them and opened their womb, according to Genesis, and, gave, and they gave birth to sons, not just any sons, but the 12 sons that made up the 12 tribes of Israel. What a blessing. So one, we can see that they might have known that Ruth hadn't had any children and probably believed that she couldn't. It was definitely understood at that time that God was in control of whether or not a woman could conceive or not. And so for some reason, God had not allowed that until now. And they say, let, let her be not only have children, but have children of significance like Rachel and Leah, who God blessed not only with children, but with the heads of the brothers that made up the 12 tribes of Israel. So the last setback is overcome through a direct miracle of the Lord's intervention in Ruth and allowing her to become pregnant. And verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife when he made love to her. The Lord enabled her to conceive. The Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. At this point, Ruth seems to disappear but it's from the story, but it's a happy ending. They end up together, and God has blessed them with a son. And if it ended here, we'd have a great story of how God worked through all these trials, all these things that they faced for his good and for their greater good through all the setbacks and trials, how God brought them through and blessed them. And by God's grace, we see how Ruth, overcoming all these obstacles, has gone from a barren widow of Moab to the grandmother of King David, or great-grandmother. And in this, I want to encourage you to not be discouraged. When you face trials, when you hit setbacks, when you hit the walls again and again as you're trying to move into what you believe God is calling you to do, or even just moving through life in general, we can hit these walls that seem so burdensome to not lose hope, but to keep your trust in the Lord who sees beyond your situation. You will hit walls in your life. Some of them you're going to break through, but others you're going to live through. But either way, keep trusting in the Lord, trusting in Him and in His providence for your life. And all this makes for this great story of God's providence, but it's not the whole story. It's not over. We still have the last few verses. And in verse 14 through 17, I'll just pick out a few things that I found quite interesting. I didn't really notice until... I don't know, second, third time I read this, that uh, it says that the women, so in verse 14, the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a, a guardian redeemer. 
Amen, right? She has a guardian redeemer. God's showed up and done something. And immediately we think, well, that must be Boaz. But then it says, may he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Well, it's probably not Boaz then. It's talking about Obed. It's talking about Ruth's son is Naomi's redeemer. That's a really interesting point. What's, what, why does the author make a point to put this in? What does he want to say? Well, if we look at the very end of, that, of, of verse 17, Obed is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And he wants to emphasize this point so clearly that again he goes through the genealogy just to make sure that we grab this. So we know that Naomi is redeemed through her grandson, Obed. We know that Naomi is blessed, but why? One, because he is a sign of how God has truly worked all things for good through her life, bringing her from empty in the beginning to full here at the end. How God's providence and sovereignty brought them through all of these things. And we see in the end that she was never really empty. She never really was, never needed to call herself bitter. Because through Ruth, who is better than seven sons, through her loyalty and love for Naomi, a lot, really left, or left Naomi full the whole time. She just didn't see it. And Naomi and Ruth's journey is a beautiful and encouraging story. But it's only from an eternal perspective. And this is where we want to kind of focus for the rest of our time. It's only in an eternal perspective that its true and greater significance becomes clear. That through all the trials, the loss, the setbacks, and ultimately through their blessing, God was working an eternal plan for his people. First Israel, through David, who had come from this line and then ultimately for the whole world, as Jesus Christ also is in the same line of David, as you can see in Matthew chapter 1, where we are list, the whole lineage is, lift, is listed and Ruth is included in that list. Ruth is included. So in Ruth and Naomi's quaint story of God's providence and hope, they were just a part, just a piece of something so much greater than themselves. This significance, again, is seen by the writer's emphasis on bringing David. And David is the last word mentioned. There was always this hope in this time of the judges that there would be a time when a king would come. That God would have, and God does, of course, eventually raise up David. But this is significant in this story of Ruth as the great-grandmother of King David. Also, one of the possible reasons for this book being written is to show the lineage of David and how Ruth played a part in it. And what this really is telling us, and again, what we'll spend the rest of our time, is that God worked out his purpose through the lives of these characters. Yes, for their good. It's a happy ending, and that's encouraging for us. But that's just a part of the story. God was also at work for a greater good that would bring David, King David, into the picture. 
And what does this mean for us today? What does this mean for us? What's the point? Well, the point is that you never know. You never know what the ordinary situations in your life might be connected to. Meaning you don't know the effects you may have on the future through God and his working in your life and through your life today. That's a powerful thing to try to grasp. It's so hard to think beyond our own days. It's so hard to think beyond our own lifetime. Sometimes beyond our week or day or our own group of friends. God was working something greater. What will your life mean in the big picture? What will your life mean in the big picture? What is your life impact? Ruth and Naomi were blessed. They died blessed. But they had no idea of the greater good that was coming just around the corner through David. That really encourages me to think, what is God what is God doing through my life today that's going to affect people in the future? There's a Greek proverb. It's a famous one. Some of you will know it. But I think it really fits well. came in my heart as I was preparing this message. A society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they know they shall never sit in. I think that's a perfect image for this idea. Meaning what? One, it's seeing the effects of your life and what they might have on the future. But it's also a call to action. It's a call to do something. You have to actually plant the tree. You can't just like the idea or concept of this. You have to actually do something. It's a call to action. Are we like the old man, building a greater society, planting the tree that we know we'll never see the fruit of, we'll never sit in the shade of, that it will be enjoyed by those that come long after we're gone? Or do we live only to enjoy the trees planted by those before us, living only in the now? When you trust in the Lord, God's plan for your life will extend beyond your days. The things that God calls you to do today will extend beyond your life, will extend beyond your view You may never know the impact you will have in doing God's will today, in doing what God calls you to do today. God sits outside of time. He sees the big picture. He sees how everything fits together. Where will we fit in to God's eternal plan as Ruth fit into God's eternal plan for a king of Israel, and eventually a Savior. She's listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Where do we, as Calvary Chapel, fit in? As Church at Five, where do we fit in to God's eternal plan? I want to, again, go back to this idea. We're right now enjoying the fruits that were planted before us. Some of you, but probably not, 
maybe most of you have definitely not been here since the beginning of Calvary Chapel, Freiburg. And yet we're here today. We're sitting here in this building. We're enjoying the fruits and labors of those before us. What will our labors and fruits produce? What are we doing that those that come after us will enjoy? Keeping an eternal perspective in mind. Only God really knows. But I promise you this, when we follow him, there is always a greater purpose at work. He's always working all things out for good. Not just in our lives. Now maybe you're called to do something amazing in your life. It's my hope for every single one of you here. That God is calling you specifically to do something world changing and momentous. But I want to encourage you to remember that you might be called to plant. You might be called to plant seeds. In 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. Now he's saying this in, a, in response to their whining of who's better? Who should we listen to? Is Paul better? Is Apollos better? And Paul's point is it doesn't matter. Neither is better. We're all just playing our part in God's plan. I was, my part was to plant. His part is to water. But it's God that's making it, making it grow. It's God that's working it out for good. You may be called to work hard in turning the dirt, planting the seed, watering it. You may be called to protect the small, fragile leaves as they first pop up, but you may never see the fruit. You may never sit in the shade. What's important to grasp is that we're all a part of God's plan, and he's the one making all things grow, all things work out. And this means that you might, not, you might also have dreams that you don't see fulfilled. This one is hard. I had the dream to be a rock star at one point in my life. We all have, we all have crazy dreams. You may have dreams. You may have really dreams that seem really important and callings on your life that you may not see fulfilled. And I think my favorite example of this is David himself. King David, his greatest desire, the thing he wanted more than anything else is to build the temple for God. He wanted to build the temple. What a glorious and righteous thing to want. What a great dream to have. But God said, no, it won't be you. David took this hard. But in the end, it was David that paved the way so that Solomon could build a greater temple than David could have. That's hard for us to to hold on to. We want to be the ones that do the great things. We want to be the ones that have the amazing callings. But it is amazing to prepare the way. It is amazing to plant the seeds. So I want to encourage you guys with that. Be a part of God's plan. And whatever he calls you to do, know that it's for a greater and bigger purpose than your own life. And some things and most things you'll never fully see the meaning of. We're a piece of a puzzle that's not yet complete. And as the song says, greater things are yet to come. Greater things. We sing this song, but 
It doesn't necessarily mean tomorrow or the next day, but we want to believe that greater things are yet to come, that God is the God of this city, God is the God of this nation, and he is the God of all things, and we are so honored to be a part of his greater plan. And what do we do with this perspective now? What do we do with this? Well, I want to, I want to encourage you to let it be your joy. Let it be your strength and let it be your peace to know you are not without a purpose. Even if you don't see your purpose fully known or fully fulfilled in your life. You are not without a purpose when you're following after God, when you're doing what he calls you to do, when you're trusting in him. You are not without a purpose. God is standing outside of time and working all things for good, all things for a greater purpose. You are not without a purpose, and that is something we can have peace and joy in. And in the end, when we reach our full inheritance and we're with the Father for eternity, Maybe then he'll show us the full effect of everything that he called us to do. But for now, we just have to trust him and know that we are called to a purpose in whatever he tells us and leads us to do. So this whole book of Ruth demonstrates how God is at work in real people's lives. How he's involved in the little things and he's working things out even in the things that seem insignificant in your life. In small situations with small people god was leading and guiding for his through his great kindness and his providence for a greater purpose in their lives and we do see those things achieved but that's not the end of the story god breathes into the lives of the characters but he also prepared for a greater purpose a work for all of Israel in the line of David and ultimately in the line that would extend to Jesus Christ, putting Ruth's name in the lineage of Jesus, something she never, ever would have grasped in that time. What a God that we serve who stands outside of time itself and works all things for a greater good. I want to invite the band to come back up. I'll pray really quickly. Father, we thank you that you work all things for good. We thank you, Father, that you are a holy, righteous God. You are a God of provision, a God of sovereignty. And we put our trust not in ourselves, not in our own understanding, not in how we see our lives playing out, but we trust in you, knowing that you are working out things for our good and our life as you promised you would, but also for greater goods that we may never even get to see in this lifetime. And we trust you with both. In Jesus' name, amen. In conclusion to the service, as we will do one last song, but we want to take also just some time for the offering. And uh, as the ushers prepare to take the offering up, I just want to encourage you guys that it's a free will offering. Nobody has to give. Nobody needs to feel pressure, especially if it's your first time here. But if you do have it on your heart, we believe that giving is an act of worship. It's something that we do. In, uh, in, reverence and, in reverence to him and also in trust to him that money is not what we trust in, but we trust in the Lord. And we want to see his kingdom furthered here in this city in every way we can. So.